Hello, I'm Rod Butler. Welcome to Let God Speak. There are many people who think that the mission of Jesus was solely to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. They focus only on his death on the cross, as marvellous, as incredible as that act of love is. But the book of Hebrews explains that his mission is so much more than that. Today we're going to discuss how Jesus is the fulfilment of the yearly feasts and sanctuary services. We'll look at the work Jesus is doing on our behalf in heaven right now as we speak. So have your Bibles ready as we explore this important topic. On our panel today, we have Stephen Groom and Morgan Vincent. Welcome. Thank you. Well, as we start our discussion, let's bow our heads for prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for the wonderful news of Jesus, our Saviour. We ask for the Holy Spirit to guide our minds as we discuss this topic. We also pray the Holy Spirit will bless our viewers with understanding of how Jesus was the fulfilment of the Israelite feasts and earthly sanctuary service. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Well, Jesus was on the earth for three and a half years. And in that time, his disciples spent a lot of time with him. And then when Jesus was resurrected, he was uh, on the earth for 40 days and his disciples were with him. But at his, at his ascension, the disciples still didn't fully understand his ministry and what he was going to be doing in heaven. So Morgan what was Jesus's ministry? What did the disciples understand at that point? Mm. Yeah, it's a great question and, and worthy to start with. And I'm going to go straight to the Bible, Rod. Yep. And in Acts chapter one, I'll read verses three and six. Uh, and the Bible says to whom this is Jesus, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And it's like, well, what's the kingdom of God all about? And the disciples in verse six, therefore, when they had come together, they asked him saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And so even after his ascension, the disciples were still thinking and still hoping that Jesus would establish an earthly kingdom with a sense of earthly focus and mission. Mm. And they're not realizing the actual reason why Jesus came. Okay, so Stephen, they didn't really have much excuse, did they? Because there was the, the yearly feasts yes. and there was the sanctuary service with the, inside the tent, the two apartments, which pointed to Jesus' work and what he was going to be doing in heaven. Yes. So Stephen, just would you explain to us um, what exactly were these yearly feasts? Well, the, the yearly feasts were, um, well, the, the Jewish year was based upon 12 lunar uh, months based on 30 days a month. Now, each of course, that would bring the year short. So in 19 years, they had to add seven months, which is they basically added uh, one year for, uh, sorry, one month for almost every three years. Um, God had ordained seven uh, feasts each year. Um, the first month, which was the spring festival, they had, uh, they had the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Wave Sheaf. Then they had Pentecost in the third month. Then in the seventh month, they had the um, 
the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, and that was in the autumn uh, months. And these all, the, the feasts were basically examples of God, the experience of God's people starting in uh, the Israel's captivity in Egypt, being freed from that, and it went right through to God's people going to heaven. And, that's mm. what, and they played that plan of salvation in types and plays every year. Mm. Yeah, thank you, Stephen. And we're going to be looking at that in more detail as we go through. So, so Morgan, um, how important were these feasts? Mm. They, were, they were incredibly important. And the Bible outlines that participation in these feasts was, was critical. And, and I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 23. And in Exodus chapter 23, from verses 14 to 17, it reads, Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. So there's that reference to, to the Exodus. And the first month was called Abib or Nisan yes. in the Hebrew language. Yeah. Great. No, thanks. Thanks, Stephen. And it goes on to say that none shall appear before me empty. Verse 16, and the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labor, which you have shown, uh, sown rather in the field, and the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times in the year, all your male shall appear before the Lord your God. And so here the entire country would descend. They would gather together in Jerusalem three times a year. Oh, well, the males, it says there. Yes. So yep. As representatives of each family, mm-hmm. the males would represent that family. Yep. So then the males, they would give the offering and it was really a time where they would all gather together, they would fellowship together, they would socialise and the entire country would reunite together. So participation was, was crucial. The, the question could be asked, you know, while they were celebrating these feasts in Jerusalem, that people could come and ransack their houses. But we see a promise in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 23, 24, sorry, it says, I will cast out the nation before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. So in this promise, God is saying he will protect their property while they're away. That's an interesting thought too, Stephen, because when you think about it, if they're all the males are in Jerusalem, the land is naked. Yes. So that's a very powerful promise. Yep. Okay, let's move on to the actual feasts themselves. Stephen, I want to look at the historical and the spiritual significance, and let's start with Passover. Can you unpack that for us? Yes. Passover um, started because when they first originated that during the uh, 10th plague, when the firstborn of Egypt were to be killed of Pharaoh's household and the Egyptians, the Israelites were told to kill the Passover lamb and to take the blood and put it on the posts and on the lintel of their doorposts and the destroying angel will pass over their, um, their household and this would protect their house or the firstborn. And they also had to offer a wave sheaf of the barley harvest um, at the temple. And so this is both com- commemorative feast of the past event in Egypt, of course, but also look forward to the future time and the, the lamb represented Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus represents a Christian who is under the protection of Jesus. And so anyone under the blood is protected from the second death and they'll be raised 
to eternal life, just as those people back in Egypt were uh, protected. And so the, there's so many correlations between the lamb. He was picked on the fourth day, uh, sorry, the tenth day. Uh, Jesus was chosen to be slain. He was killed on the 14th and Jesus was actually slain on that 14th day of Abib. The Jews were actually um, keeping Passover, the time when Jesus was crucified. And I think that's enough for that time for that one. It's interesting too, you were saying, Stephen, about the wave sheaf. Mm. We know from Matthew, uh, I'm just going to read Matthew 27, verse 52 and 53. It's quite interesting that it says, And the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints uh, which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. This is an example of the first fruits, like you say, the first uh, sheaves of barley, the first of the harvest. This is the first fruits of the resurrection. Yes, very Which also emphasised that point. Yeah. Now, just on that, Morgan, when Jesus was, uh, ro- did rise from the dead, mm. something rather interesting happened. Talk us through that. Sure, sure. So I want to read two texts. And the first one is from John chapter 20. Uh, and I'll read verses 16 and 17. And here... Uh, Jesus said to her, this is Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabbi, which is to say teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me or do not touch me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Now I'll read in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 9. And as they went to Tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. So they came and they held him by the feet and worshipped him. So here the first text says, Jesus says, Don't touch me. But the second text says, Well, he, he allows them, right? He permits them to. And this is interesting because just like the people would present themselves at the Passover with an offering. So Jesus presents himself, right? As you said, Stephen, as the Passover lamb, he presents himself before the Father in heaven and the sacrifice is accepted. And the wave sheaf is an mm-hmm. example of the wave sheaf. And, he, and he, he does that the first thing and only when he's done that does he come back and allow them to, to handle him. Mm, mm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very interesting. That moves us on to Pentecost. Now, Stephen, talk us through Pentecost. Yeah, Pentecost. A here, yeah. The word uh, penti is 50 in the meaning of 50 in Greek. Pentecost means 50th. So it's actually um, 50 days from the offering of the wave sheaf uh, in the temple services until actually the, the coming of the Holy Spirit when it was fulfilled. You know, the, the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and the Holy Spirit was sent down. And um, there's so many correlations there. Jesus was on the earth for another 40 days. And then 10 days after he ascended to heaven to make up the 50 and the uh, disciples were in the upper room praying and bringing unity and the Holy Spirit came down um, in its full. The the priest during this day of Pentecost was to offer two barley loaves as well as free will offering to the Lord um, as an offering. And uh, they were to, is a very rejoiceful occasion. They rejoiced because of their freedom from bondage of sin. And in the same way, um, when the disciples were on earth, they saw very little um, response from their three and a half years of ministry with Jesus. But they saw the benefits on 
the day of Pentecost, mm. this is like the bringing in of the harvest. You know, they offered the mm. fruits of the, the loaves of the harvest. In the same way, uh, I think it teaches we have to be faithful in our ministry now. We might, might not see um, the benefits of our labor, but in, just before Jesus comes again, there'll be another outpouring of the Holy Spirit like it's uh, given in Joel chapter 2, and many more people will be brought to the Lord. Mm. Mm. Thanks for that, that's Stephen. So Jesus historically has fulfilled the, uh, the typology of um, Passover and Pentecost. We move now on to the, the other remaining, the third of the, the feasts, which is the festival or feast of the booths. Mm. Also called the tabernacles. Or the feast of ingathering. Yes. So mm. Talk us through that, Morgan. Yeah, so very simply, it was an eight-day festival which started on the 15th day of the seventh month, uh, which would have been mid to late autumn of their year and it was called the Feast of Ingathering and it was a, a great time of celebration. Uh, it was a time where there would be the ingathering of the harvest of that year, uh, the fruits, the grains, etc. And it was a time where the people, they would uh, kind of build and construct these temporary booths uh, that they would you know, li live in uh, and, and be there for. But it, the interesting thing to note is that it was five days after the Day of Atonement. Mm. Now, this is interesting because this means that prior to that, upon the Day of Atonement, is the assurance that their sins are forgiven uh, and that they're right with God because, you know, the sins have been removed from the sanctuary, which means that this, this feast was a time when the people were at peace with God. Yes. Mm. So th this, this brings in the spiritual develop, uh, mm. realm now. So, Stephen, from what Morgan has said, let's build on that. What's the spiritual significance of the Feast of Booths? Okay, thanks for that. So historically, it, it, it showed the time of the, it represented the time of their wandering in tents, in mm. booths, so to speak. And during the actual festival, they had to stay in tents, so to speak. Um, as you mentioned, it's five days after the Day of Atonement. Um, in, in, what would you call it? In end time application, now we're going through the time of, Day of Atonement at the moment, which is a time of judgment in heaven, one of the duties that, that Jesus is doing in the most holy place. But when that's finished, soon after that, Jesus will come again and God's people will once again, like the children of Israel in the wilderness, will be transit, will be transported to heaven, so to speak. And I also find it interesting that and, and as we're taken to the New Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 4, John saw the, the, new, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven and coming down on earth. And, and John uses this temporal uh, language. He saw in, in jo Revelation 20, verse 9, he says he saw the camp of the saints. Mm. And we have this booth language. So even the, the New Jerusalem is not to be their final home. Um, it's not until the wicked are destroyed and God recreates the earth that the, the saved will go out and start to build their permanent houses. Mm. So I, I believe that the Festival of Booths shows the, God's transitory um, movements on the earth. I want to move now to read a text in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Morgan, in light of what, been, in light of what we've been discussing, mm. what is this verse verifying? Look, just one thought that, that just stands out now is that God is for us. 
like the God in heaven is for us. And I think we can never forget that. And I want to read also just the chapter before in, in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Here it says, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. So here we see that there is a sanctuary in heaven that's in operation. And in chapter nine, it contrasts the, the earthly with the heavenly. Mm. And here we see uh, that it's, it's, it's a sanctuary with, with a better priest, with a better sacrifice, mm. with better blood mm. based upon better promises. Mm. And here, verse 24, as you read, Rod, uh, it confirms that Jesus is ministering for us in heaven now. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Okay, I want to backtrack now. I want to go back to Sinai. We want to look at the events um, that happened at Sinai, and then we want to discuss the sanctuary. So, Stephen, uh, when the law had been given at Mount Sinai, how, how did God reveal himself to the Israelites at that stage? Oh, he revealed himself in mighty show of power with lightning and flashes. And um, he, he spoke his voice in Mount Sinai saying the 10 words with the 10 commandments. And as the Bible says that the people were so afraid, they went on, fell down on their faces and they, they told Moses mm. to speak to them and not God because they were so afraid. Um, they, they saw the power of God um, in the 10 mighty plagues in, in Egypt. And they also saw um, God work for them in the parting of the Red Sea. And then when they got through the, the destruction of their enemies in the Egyptians. Mm. Um, so God revealed himself through their journey to show that he was working for them. Mm. Morgan, how did they, um, what did the people want to do? How did they want to deal with this situation? Well, they were fearing for their lives. And, and I want to read in Exodus 20, uh, verses 18 and 19. It says, Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, You speak with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. So here they're, they're very afraid, and they knew that they couldn't stand before God. Well, it's amazing. I'm going to read a, a text also, which is really interesting. Here's this God that's revealing himself with all this mighty power. They're so frightened they want Moses to be the intercessor for them, mm. or the mediator. Then we have in chapter 25 of Exodus and verses 8 and 9, and this is God speaking, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. Here's this amazing, mighty God that's so fearful to them all. Mm. He's saying, I want to live and dwell amongst you. And uh, Moses, of course, was given the instructions to build the sanctuary. Now, this, this sanctuary included a priesthood. Stephen, talk us through what does the priesthood do? Yes. Okay. The priesthood were intermediaries. They performed the, the rites and ceremonies of the temple services, showing the people basically the way of salvation. Um, I just want to read a couple of texts. First, Exodus chapter 28, verse 1. It says, Now take Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as priest. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer and Ithamar. So here we see Aaron's um, family were taken apart to be, they were from the tribe of Levi, Levi but Aaron and his 
uh, descendants were chosen to be the priests representing God. And also I'd like to read Exodus 19 verse 6. 19 verse 6. In representing God and performing the rites, here is the requirements. It says in verse 6, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God is saying they had to be holy, like a, a step higher than the, the common people in representing him to the, uh, as priests. And um, yes. Hmm. So God, God ordained these priests to represent him to the people. Within the sanctuary itself, though, this is where God dwelt. We know that sin can't exist where God is. Mm -hmm. How are the priests protected within the sanctuary itself, uh, Morgan? Primarily, in, in, it might seem a strange way, but they were protected by three embroidered linen veils. And this is interesting. These veils are described in Exodus chapter 26 and 27. The first veil was, was the veil from the, the, the sanctuary from the outer court. And that's where a sinner would come uh, and bring their offering uh, to, to you know, place upon the altar. The second veil was the, to enter the first apartment of the holy place. And that was only by the priests. But then the third veil was to enter the second apartment or the most holy place uh, of the um, sanctuary, the temple. And that was only by the high priest. And it was only once a year upon the day of atonement. And so these veils, they were, were access points, but also protective barriers for, for the people too. Mm. And we, we know that uh, all part of the sanctuary had representation of Christ. Mm -hmm. Stephen, the veils actually also represented Christ. This is deep. Yes. Talk us through how they did represent Christ. Yes, thank you. The three veils were made of white linen um, with woolen strands of blue, purple and scarlet. The white represents Christ's uh, sinless life. The wool represents Jesus, the Lamb of God, God as, as John saw him in John chapter 1, verse 29. Blue represents the law of God, um, which reflects God's character. Purple represents um, Jesus' kingship and scarlet represents the blood of Christ, which, which saves us, um, sacrifice. So I'd like to also read uh, Hebrews 10.20. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 20 says, Therefore, brethren, having uh, Boldness to enter the holiest place by the blood of Jesus, by a new a living way which he con consecrated for us through the veil, that is, through his flesh. So through his flesh, we can by faith enter the most holy place. And it, this was most beautiful. Um, that's where the, the holiest place of the whole temple service was. And on the veils there were embroidered uh, two cherubim. And there's two thoughts to this, that these cherubim represent those around God's throne Another thought is it actually represents Satan's angels because it obstructs the people's view to the most holy place, his character. And that's the only thing that was destroyed by Christ's death. Um, Christ's death showed the character of God and the veil was rent from top to bottom, showing people God's character in between. Yeah, very, very important, the symbology there. Now, just, just moving ahead, Morgan, we're just going to jump ahead here. Mm -hmm. um, what evidence do we have that the earthly sanctuary... Um, met its fulfilment with Christ's sacrifice. What mm. evidence do we have that we don't need to sacrifice animals anymore? Yeah, if we turn in our Bibles to, to Matthew chapter 27, we, we find a, a very fascinating verse uh, in verse 50. 
uh, and I'll read. It says, And Jesus, he cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. And so here we see this veil torn from top to bottom. Uh, the veil was, was there hidden from the most holy place. But here we see that by it being torn, it's, it's, it's telling us that the earthly is being done away with and it's pointing to the heavenly. Yeah, it was a supernatural event, for mm-hmm. sure, for sure. Mm. Which begs the question, Stephen, what is Jesus doing right now in the heavenly sanctuary? That's a good point. Well, he is the fulfillment of the, the high priest in the um, earthly tabernacle service. So he has entered the most holy place in heaven now for us. I'd like to go to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So as the high priest Aaron in the Old Testament represented the people in the most holy place, intermediating between God and, and, man, and the people of Israel. So now we have a uh, representative of heaven, Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. who lived his life on earth, knows the temptations we're going through. He's able to administer the Holy Spirit to help us and help us to be saved, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. I just want to read another text here in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22. The wording is quite interesting. It says, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. Now this speaks as if we're already there, mm. but we're not there. Um, what does this mean, Morgan? Mm. It's really beautiful, the, the language of, you know, we've come to Mount Zion. And uh, it all reminds me of Hebrews 11, verse 10, where speaking of Abraham, for he waited for the city which had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And so like Abraham of old, we in faith can look forward to this city, the heavenly. Yeah, very good. So, Stephen, knowing that Jesus is our high priest, knowing that he understands us, how should we approach salvation? It's not like an earthly court where you know that the people are out to book you or put you in prison. Jesus is actually there for us. Mm. And in verse 16 that we already said, we should come boldly before him. Also, I'd like to read 1 John 1, 9. Now, we also have a duty to confess our sins. If we do this, if we confess our sins, he, as our high priest, is faithful and just to forgive us, our high priest. He presents the blood-stained hands before the Father, and because of that, he can forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, our experience, we, we walk with Christ, mm. um, forgive us of our sins. So we can have that assurance at all time that it doesn't matter what we've done, Christ will be able to forgive us. Yes. And he's there 24-7 for us. Mm. Okay. Very good. Well, thank you, uh, Morgan. Thank you, Stephen. We look back at the feasts and the sanctuary service and see how Jesus has fulfilled all typology perfectly. And we now look to Jesus in heaven, our high priest and veil to enter the throne of God with assurance and confidence of our eternal salvation. He is coming soon to take us home. And we invite you to give your heart to Jesus today and also have this assurance of salvation. Thank you for joining us on Let God Speak. 
Remember, all past programs plus teachers' notes are available on our website, 3abinaustralia.org.au. Email us if you wish on lgs at 3abinaustralia.org.au. Join us again next time and God bless. You have been listening to Let God Speak, a production of 3ABN Australia Television. To catch up on past programs, please visit 3abnaustralia.org.au. Call us in Australia on 02 4973 3456 or email radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. We'd love to hear from you.